So uh, let's go ahead and um, dive in. Now, normally what I like to do is I like to read the whole passage first and then kind of walk through it. Uh, but today, again, as is the case when we're dealing with narrative, it's just a ton of words. So we're just going to read the whole passage bit by bit and then break it down um, as we go. And let's go ahead and, and, and pray to start. So, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your presence with us. We ask, Lord, this morning as we're feeling so many things, we're feeling hurt and we're feeling broken and we're feeling even more apparent of our desperate need for you and your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us this morning through this story. We love you, Jesus, and our eyes are fixed on you. Okay, before we dive into the text, I want to just do a, a, a quick recap of the city uh, that we're in right now. So we're in um, Ephesus, as you can see. This is Paul's third missionary journey. And um, he Ephesus at this point, because remember, this is where Rick preached from last week. And if you look at his screen, that's actually the Acadian way. Um, which is from the stadium in Ephesus out to the bay. And that road was lined with shops. Um, but here in Ephesus, this was, it kind of became a hub or the center of the church in the West. Um, Paul spent several years here. Um, we'll see that he plans his first few missionary journey, or he plans the rest of this third missionary journey from this spot. We'll see him send out Titus um, or Timothy and Erasmus with a letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians we have um, from Ephesus. Uh, John, the apostle, lived years of his life in Ephesus and actually Patmos, where he was exiled near the end of his life, is just off of the coast of Ephesus. Um, legend says that Mary, Jesus' mother, um, ended her life in Ephesus. Um, that's where she spent the rest of her days. I mean, it just kind of became a really core uh, central hub for what God was doing in that part of the world. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first couple verses, starting in verse 21. Now, after these events, so this was after, um, uh, remember the big book burning and all this different kind of stuff where uh, the Ephesians were throwing off this mantle of um, the occult and magic practices and all this different kind of stuff, the fascination they had. Um, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome and have, and having sent into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So this is, this is the context. So after this, you, we see Paul resolving in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia to Jerusalem. Now on the map, we just showed you Macedonia. That was remember where he went on a second missionary journey to Philippi. He went to Corinth or well, actually Corinth is in Achaia in the South, but he went to Philippi. He went to Thessalonica. He went to Berea. That's all in that Northern Macedonian section of Greece. And then to Achaia that's in the South. Remember where they, they pass over the Isthmus to get to Corinth and the South of Greece is right there. Um, and so he's, he's already planning his trip ahead of time. Um, and then we see this line, I must also oh, oh, ask Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So we see this is the moment in the book of Acts where it's, it's an interesting moment because it almost mirrors Jesus in Acts nine, or in Luke nine, where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to be persecuted and killed. 
and Paul sets his face here, you know, before he sets out on the rest of his missionary journey towards Jerusalem and then ultimately on to Rome. And so just remember this passage as we continue through our Acts series and as we talk about uh, Paul and the rest of his missionary journey. Um, this, is, this is kind of a key moment for that. So, okay, let's keep reading in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that uh, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, so there's a a, a ton going on here, and I, I want to just go bit by bit briefly, where it says, uh, about that time there rose, no little disturbance is a really awkward transliteration. There was, there was a big disturbance concerning the way, and we're about to hear about it. And if you're new to Christianity in the story, the way is what the church was called. That was the movement of Christianity. They were called the way in the book of Acts. I actually used to go to a college ministry on Friday nights called the way uh, in Tigard. And I think a few of you might've been there as well. It was a good time. Uh, and so we see it was named after this, the way. There arose a great disturbance of the way. And there's a silversmith named Demetrius, which by the way, if you're pregnant, great baby name. Just throwing that out there. Demetrius. It's an awesome, awesome name. Well, he's not an awesome guy, but it's an awesome name. Uh, and he makes, he makes these shrines to Artemis. Now, Artemis is the Greek god of the hunt. The Romans co-opted her and called her Diana. Um, and there is this temple of Artemis that's in Ephesus, and it is key. It's this massive pillar to a huge part of the Ephesian economy. And I want to show you guys uh, what it looks like. So take a look at this with me. This is an artist's rendering of what the temple uh, would have looked like. So it was 115 meters long and 55 meters wide. You can, if you want to get a guesstimate, just convert that to yards. That's pretty close. A meter is close to a yard long. So 150, so longer than a football field, wider than a football field. Those columns are 19 meters tall. I mean, just massive. It took 120 years to make this temple. It, there were 127 columns in total in this temple. I mean, it was just this incredible work of craftsmanship and of art. And there was a traveler who had actually traveled and seen the seven wonders of the ancient world. And for him, Artem this temple to Artemis was, was the greatest. And we'll read this quote from him. He says, I gazed on the walls of the of impregnable Babylon, along with chariots, along which chariots may race, and on the Zeus by the banks of the Alpheus. I have seen the hanging gardens and the Colossus of Helios, the great man-made mountains of the lofty pyramids, and the gigantic tomb of Masalus. But when I saw the sacred house of Artemis that towers to the clouds, the others were placed in the shade, for the sun himself has never looked upon its equal outside 
Olympus. I mean, for, for the Ephesians, this monument, this, this temple, this, this wonder of the ancient world was a massive part of their local economy. Think about all the tourism that would come in, people traveling from all over the empire, all over Asia, coming to see this temple, see this work of art, and go and worship Artemis and buy a shrine and buy, you know, all this different kind of stuff. And so the church, remember, we were just talking about how the church was having such a massive impact and it became a hub there in Ephesus. It's having such an impact. It's affecting not just the city in Ephesus, but the entire surrounding region, so much so that it's affecting tourism. Fewer people are coming to the city. Do you think it's local Ephesians that are keeping these, uh, that are keeping these uh, shrine makers in business? No, it's all the travelers. It's people coming from everywhere. And the way is having such an impact that it's affecting their bottom line. And so Demetrius gathered these, gathers this group of people together and says, hey, this Paul guy, this, this way is affecting us. And not only that, what's going to happen to our culture? What's going to happen to our city? They're going to throw even the great goddess Artemis into disrepute. And so what's the answer? They go and stir up a riot. Look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, whom were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among them into the crowd, um, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, uh, who were friends of his, said to him, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, and the assembly was in confusion. Most did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So to kind of help us picture the mayhem of this moment, I want us to take a look at um, what what this theater looked like. So I want to show just briefly a map. So there's two main ways to get to the theater. You've got the Arcadian way that goes from the harbor, and that's what Rick's picture is behind his uh, chair there, is the Arcadian way. There's shops all, the, I mean, this is like Main Street USA. There's all kinds of shops and sellers of whatever you want, spices, goods, scarves, anything along this road. And then there's another road, Theater Street, and then there's the massive theater right there. And one of these two roads, they drag these two guys, Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, and they're friends of Paul. Gaius from Derby, Aristarchus is from Thessalonica. They're Macedonians that are traveling with Paul that are a part of the way, leaders in the way. They're mentioned in other parts of the scripture. Um, and this is the stadium today. I mean, it is a massive place. All these little dots you see, those are people. I mean, think about this place. And as the, as the disturbance grow, more and more people flood into the stadium. And there's confusion and there's chaos and they don't know what, what's going on. What's, who's causing this? It's the Jews. It's the Christians. It's Paul. It's the way. It's this, it's this madhouse of what's happening. And more and more people come because you can hear it from the rest of the city. The whole Akkadian way can hear this massive disturbance. And then the Jews, we assume when it says the Jews here, it's talking about the Christian Jews, say, hey, let's send Alexander to address the crowd. And so this guy gets up to address the crowd and give a defense of Christianity, probably preach the gospel, and they recognize him as a Jew. 
And so they just scream all the louder. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can imagine the cheering, the stomping of the feet, the yelling, the echo of, of this place and just the madhouse nature of it all. You can, and I, I, just knowing Paul, knowing his character, just being like, let me out of boy. I want to go. I want to talk to them. Everyone's like, you sit down, sir. You are not going to make things nicer. You're going to make things much worse. And so he stays home and he's even getting letters from friends of his being like, hey, you really should not go in there at all. Stay where you are. And so he does. Um, uh, let's, uh, but uh, let's, let's keep going uh, with the story here in verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. For since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So, the town clerk comes in and quiets the crowd, mentions the justice system, and the town clerk clearly knows it was Demetrius and the crew that stirred this all up, and he disperses the crowd. And I want to dip into really briefly uh, chapter 20, verse 1, really quick. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Paul's like, I was planning on going to Macedonia, and I'm off to Macedonia now. Does, does this strike anyone else as kind of anticlimactic? Like we're used, we're used to like, if there's a mob, like someone's being thrown out of the city or, or, you know, there's something happening where we go, oh, you know, and then, or Paul's thrown in prison or they say, hey, you, or there's a confrontation or the gospel's preached, or there's a, one of those famous summary statements that is made all the time, you know, that's kind of like uh, 1920 after the book burning where it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, like something. But all we have is just the story of a mob just screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the town clerk being like, we have a court system, go home. And they're like, yeah, okay. And they go home. So then the question is, what is this? What, why is this in the narrative? What's, what's going on here? Why does Luke include this? And the thing that really stands out to me here in this passage is what, this is what happens when the gospel clashes against culture. In a big way. I mean, look at this Demetrius guy is a smart dude. He, he's a silversmith and he starts his story. Uh, look at verse uh, 25. He gathers them together and he says, you know, from this business, we have our wealth. He goes, our livelihood is on the line here. Probably not our livelihood. I'm sure they were all secure. They just were greedy. They wanted more money. We, this is on the line. Our income's on the line here. And he starts there, but look kind of where he takes it. He says, and you've seen here that not only in Ephesus, almost all of Asia, Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. 
And then look at this. And there is a danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And she may even be deposed from her magnificence. And look at their response. When they heard this, they were enraged, crying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There wasn't like hashtag justice for silver workers. That wasn't, that wasn't where they went with this. They went, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Demetrius turned this thing, this economic reality, and melded into the cultural, the cultural bias and base and the worldview that the entire city had and said, this matters to you because of this narrative and tied it directly into their culture. And whenever a culture is threatened, people protest, people mob, people, there's violence in the streets. I mean, I'm thinking of what's going on right now with the horrific murder of George Floyd and communities. I, I know you guys are hurting. I know I'm hurting. I know we, I've had lots of conversations with people this last week who are in deep pain about this. Um, and we see riots and we see a peaceful protest in Portland co-opted by people trying to take advantage of an awful situation for their own financial gain to riot and loot and steal. Or we see this a few, a few weeks ago with the riots all over the U.S. protesting the stay-at-home orders. We see this thing where we say, hey, stay at home. It's for the safety of the, the weakest among us. And it, you see how it, it gets twisted into this other narrative about, about well, yeah, that sure, but what about your, your freedoms? What about the economy? What about all this different kind of stuff that's like speaking directly to the American mindset? And it becomes this whole other deal. And we see people reacting to that. And, 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 and by the way, sometimes I think this, like, it's so hard to see our own culture. It's so hard to see our own biases. It's like trying to tell a fish to see the water or for us to see the air. It's hard to see the air. We live in it all the time. We see the effects of the air, but it's hard to see it because it's just us. It's just where we live and where we work. And Unfortunately, here in America, like Ephesus, our culture is deeply tied to the economy in a big way. Uh, we, we, we make so many cultural assumptions and we hold these values like democracy and capitalism up so high in our own hearts and our minds. And by the way, I'm not a communist or I'm not a, you know, I'm, I love the free market. I think it's great. But again, that's what are we holding in our hearts above something else? Are we holding things above the word of God, above the values of the gospel? Is that something we're tempted to? Why is this a scary sermon for me to give? Why is this something I'm worried to talk about? You, you, you know, this, this, this is something where it's, it's something like our, our hackles rise within us when we start talking about these things. And the question I have is, what do we do when the gospel itself confronts our culture? What do we do when the words of Jesus go against our biases, when the gospel of Jesus goes against our very worldview? How do we respond in that moment? I mean, this ultimately, this is a sermon about money. And this might be the first sermon or the last you ever hear that's a sermon about money that doesn't end with, so you should give to the church more. <laughs> that's not where we're going today. This is a sermon about our culture 
and our reaction to an affiliation with the economy and affiliation with money and our obsession with it. Um, you know, and by the way, I'm not like free from this. I'm not separate from this. I'm a part of this culture. I was doing research for stats on this message and an ad came up telling me like, did you know that Congress passed a uh, mortgage stimulus package that'll help you if your mortgage, if your mortgage is under a certain amount. And I thought, I did not know that. I need to know more about this right now. And so I start, I'm going to Google this, you know, and because I'm not going to click on some dumb advertiser. I'm going to Google this myself. I'm an intelligent person. And so I'm going to, you know, Google this and I find out and I'm doing the research and I go, oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, interesting. You have to have this much. And it just, it just, I'm doing a sermon about a culture's obsession with money. And I find out I can get a tax break or something on my mortgage. I'm like, just a second, Jesus, I got something to do. And I start like researching. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I'm like, I have a job. My wife has a job. We're not struggling with our mortgage payment. But I'm so entrenched in this culture of greed and materialism and more, more, more. When I see any opportunity for gain, I say, hold on just a minute, Holy Spirit. I'm going to go step into this right now. I'm going to look at this. Man. Oh, look, like, what are some of Jesus' teachings about money? What did Jesus have to say when it comes to this stuff? Here, here's just a, I'm just going to read these passages. This is Matthew uh, 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for he will either hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or Luke, this is in the middle of a parable about a guy who stored up in his barns for years, all this wealth. And he's thinking about building bigger barns. He says this, and I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself a treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Man, if, if there's anything that's the American dream, it's this rich guy. He's already got barns full of stuff. He's saying, I'm going to build bigger barns for more stuff. And then I'm going to say, soul, you've got goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Just imagining at the end of my life, <clears throat> arriving in heaven and saying, God, I got my dream house. I got it. I got the car I always wanted. I got the perfect office. 
You should see the comfortable chair. I'm just imagining. I'm just imagining Jesus saying, you already received your reward for that. That's it. You got it. Luke 21, one through four. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I have never in my life given as much as that woman. See, I'm... I'm getting a different picture here of the gospel, of the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus is Lord, than one of the American dream. And, and after realizing I got sucked into this cultural moment of trying to get more and get help with the mortgage or whatever, um, I, I, I read this um, in a, a, a message from a senator or a congressman saying, please do not apply for this unless you need help please. So plea with people to not be greedy. Man, I'm like genuinely ashamed of how much this culture seeps into my own heart. Now, as a church, we have this saying, we say it all the time, we're called to be who we are, where we are. Who are we? We did a whole series on it. We're the people of Yahweh. Where are we? We're all over, but a lot of us are in Sherwood. And I was doing some research on the stats of Sherwood. Do you guys know that we're the second richest city in Oregon? It's crazy to me. Last year, we were the first. Last year, uh, we beat out everybody. But this year, Happy Valley beat us out. And because they beat us out, they must be the happier valley. <laughs> you know what a poverty rate is? I mean, just for comparison, Tigard, Tualatin, they're closer to like 10 or 11%. Albania, I think is like 20, 25%. Haiti is like 80%. The poverty rate in Sherwood is 2.7%. I mean, Rick, so from the start of this thing, Rick and I have been all over the place trying to help the needy and the poor in our church, in, in, in the broader community, and everybody's good. Like we've been calling the YMCA, the Share Center, Refugee Care Collective, the Senior Center, meals, like anything. And everyone's like, we're good. We're being taken care of. So what does it mean to be the people of Yahweh in one of the richest cities in Oregon? With a, a minuscule poverty rate. You know, as Christians... It's way easier to feel like we're doing good and following Jesus when we hand a sandwich to a hungry person than it is to have a conversation with a rich young ruler. That's way harder. I don't know about you, but I'm afraid that if I have a conversation with a rich young ruler, it might go the same way that Jesus' conversation went with the rich young ruler. Here, let's read that story together. Go ahead and turn with me to Luke 18.
I'm going to start reading in, in verse 18. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time than in the age to come eternal life. <clears throat> you know, we're surrounded by the rich young ruler. We're surrounded by people that they're keeping the law. They're not murdering. They're not stealing. They're just living out the American dream. They're, they're doing this stuff there, you know? Yeah. And by, by the way, the, the answer here, the call today isn't for us to sell everything we've got um, and go live in cardboard boxes. That's not the call. I, I genuinely believe most of you are m way more sold out to the kingdom of God than to the American economy or to your own personal dream. Um, and because of that, God's blessed you. Um, but we're surrounded by neighbors, by coworkers, by friends that have dedicated their life to making it. And now that they've made it, they still find that same emptiness that's joined them the whole journey still present. And we know life. We know who has life, who is the way, who is the truth and the life. We know the king. We can tell a different story, a story of hope and peace Enjoy. Yeah. Again, this message is all about money, but um, the call isn't for us to change our money habits. I mean, if, if something I've said today, or if the Holy Spirit's convicting you about your money habits, then go with that. Listen to that. But that's not the call today. The call today is for us to have the conversations that we don't want to have with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with the people around us that find so much hope and joy and life in pursuing money when it's a dead end. And we have access to true life and we can tell a different story.
And we can see what happens when the economy is threatened, what happens when financial security is threatened. People protest, they gather, they mob, just like they did 2,000 years ago in Ephesus when the economy was under attack by the way. We get to be a part of a different story. And I don't have like a cool example of me talking to a neighbor and convincing them to sell their car or something like that. I don't have anything like that. Um, I just know that the, if we really are to be who we are, where we are, and we are the church, we are the, the body of Christ in this world. And where we are is one of the richest places, not only in our state, but globally. That means that we have to approach our culture with the same nuance and finesse that a missionary does when traveling overseas. It's harder sometimes, though, because we're a part of it and we're in the middle of it and it's hard to see. So that's the ask. We look at this story and we see the clash of culture and the gospel and we ask ourselves, Lord, where does the gospel clash with my culture, with what I believe? Where does it where does it come into play? So I don't have a high note or a happy note or a funny story to end the teaching, just a conviction that I need to do better. Um, and that there are people around me that are spending decades pursuing something that will not fulfill and ultimately leads to death. And that breaks my heart. So let's pray together. Um, and worship, and let's just ask the Spirit to move in our hearts. Um, yeah, this is a this is a really good time for us to listen. Um, there's a lot of a lot of us are hurting right now. A lot of friends are hurting right now, and I, I'm sure the Spirit wants to speak to us in different ways about different things, about wherever we're at. And so, let's just be intentional as we sing together, even though we're divided by screens. Let's be intentional to genuinely listen to the spirit of God as we sing and pray and worship together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your presence with us. And um, this morning, Lord, I ask for your grace to help me see where greed and materialism and the brokenness of this way of life is just seeping into my soul. Help me, Lord, follow your words. Help me follow your way. Help me step in line with your truth and your goodness. And help me have the opportunity to be in relationship with people enough to have conversations that matter about life. Help me care enough to build relationships with coworkers and neighbors that don't know you yet. Go before us, Lord, and show us how you want us to be your people faithfully in this place. Give us eyes to see, Lord, where your children, where your people, and we listen.